Hey, this is Michael Howey. I want to thank you for listening and subscribing on your smartphone to Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers. Did you know that we now have Defender Radio tees, women's tees, and hoodies available? That's right, and they look pretty awesome if I do say so myself. Your purchase of Defender Radio apparel also helps keep me flush with peppermint tea and helps support the Living with Wildlife, Make for History, and Humane Education campaigns of the Fur Bears. To get yours today, visit Defender Radio on Twitter or Facebook to find the links, or check out this week's show notes and blog at thefurbears.com. This week's episode is supported by the Hardy Hooligan. This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of September 11, 2017, and this is Michael Howey welcoming you to episode 445 of Defender Radio. If you're anything like me, your knowledge of turtles will start around the point of poor pet decisions for kids or ninjas who like pizza up to helping them cross the road, and that's about it. But as I found out, there are eight native species in Ontario, and several of them are considered at risk. I also learned that there's a whole lot of dedicated people working exceptionally hard to help turtles. I had the wonderful opportunity to visit the Ontario Turtle Conservation Centre and speak with Dr. Sue Carstairs, Executive and Medical Director at the Centre and the Kawartha Turtle Trauma Centre. Turtle rehabilitation, surgery, their importance to our ecosystem, why some species are pretty much living dinosaurs, and what 3,000 turtle eggs are doing in plastic kitchen containers in Peterborough was all discussed in this recorded Facebook Live interview with an additional 25 minutes not previously heard. But before we get started, I have a quick message about this week's supporter. When I'm looking for a meal that satisfies my hunger and my ethics, I head to the Hardy Hooligan here in Hamilton. They have incredible vegan versions of egg salad, chicken salad, and tuna salad daily, as well as savory pies, including my favorite shepherd's pie pasty amazing desserts, and even locally roasted coffee in biodegradable cups. The Hardy Hooligan is definitely food worth rioting for. Check them out at 368 Main West in Hamilton right by Lock Street, or find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at thehardyhooligan.com. Hi everybody, this is Michael Howey, the host of the Defender Radio podcast and the director of digital content for the Fur Bears. I'm here at the Ontario Turtle Rehabilitation Centre, or Conservation Centre, sorry, as well as the Kawartha Animal Hospital with Dr. Sue Carstairs. Did I say that right? Almost, I know it's confusing. It's the Ontario Turtle Conservation Centre and we're home of the Kawartha Turtle Trauma Centre. It's right. a mouthful, but thanks for trying. <laughs> Uh, so we're recording an interview and going to do a bit of video and stuff, but first we thought we would log on to Facebook Live and check and see if there's any good questions. Now, I wanted to start this out by asking one of my questions, uh, because my experience with turtles up until this point was when they're ninjas, and mm. the red-eared slider that my dad apparently replaced several times, oh. and I didn't know until I was in my early 30s and it was very traumatizing. Uh, so what species of turtles do we have in Ontario who are native? 
who are native. Okay, we have eight species actually that are native in Ontario. So we have the um, wood turtle and the spotted turtle. <clears throat> we have uh, spiny softshell. So they're the most endangered of the ones that we see a lot of. We have map turtle, musk turtle, uh, we have Blanding's turtle, and then we have the snapping turtle and the painted turtle. So the only one currently not listed is the painted turtle. And that probably will be added once they compile all the data on that. And why are so many different species of turtles at risk right now in Ontario? That's a really good question because um, it's the same globally. For, for turtles, they're one of the most endangered vertebrates on the planet right now. So it's a, this multifaceted reason for uh, their population to decline. Probably the number one reason globally is habitat loss, mm -hmm. habitat fragmentation. And in Ontario here, a second to that is uh, road mortality. Mm -hmm. So we have the biggest concentration of roads in southern Ontario of anywhere in Canada. We can't go more than a kilometer and a half without running into one. It's also the biggest concentration of turtles in Canada. So wow. that's number two. Others are, you know, boating mortalities, mm -hmm. fishing by catch. It's not legal to, to fish or hunt for them anymore, but they do accidentally get injured. Um, predation and um, poaching. Unfortunately, they are still poached for the pet trade. The most endangered ones, the populations have been reduced from that. That's remarkable. Um, and one of the things I found very interesting, and I was just commenting on this uh, with one of your staff inside, was seeing the turtles who are as small as that little red-eared slider I had as a kid, uh, you know, about this big, all the way up to what I'm relatively sure was actually a dinosaur in a tub. Uh, and that was one of your snapping turtles. What is it about the environment here that allows for such diversity? Uh, in, in both size and weight and uh, also I just in species. But those those little babies, of course, they'll grow up to be bigger mm -hmm. turtles. There's a various, yeah, the various habitats that the different species like. We have a great number of wetlands here in southern Ontario. We, and in Canada, we had a large number of the world's wetlands. We've lost about 70% of them in the last wow. 100 years. So we, it's just having those wetlands and then some of those different species of turtles like the boggy marshy areas, some of the deeper areas, some fast flowing, some are more terrestrial than others where turtles spend quite a bit of time on land. Some travel quite a bit on land, some don't leave the water much. So we have all these little micro, these ecosystems throughout the wetlands and the wetlands Generally, throughout the world, wetlands are supposed to be the most biodiverse mm -hmm. ecosystem on the planet. So turtles are probably the biggest biomass in those wetlands. And we have so many wetlands here in Ontario and so many diverse ecosystems within that. So we can have, you know, quite a large number of species. Well, and as our audience knows, beavers help to create and maintain wetlands in Ontario and across Canada. So we need to protect our beavers too. Uh, so saving beavers helps to save turtles in a way, I guess, doesn't it? Yeah, vice versa. We, uh, we, we are all about um, conservation of turtles and the habitat they live in. And the habitat houses so many other species. So we're not just about turtles, of course. We're about the habitat that house all the species that live in the wetlands. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all the birds and the, the amphibians and all the other reptiles. Because with healthy wetlands are healthy for us, too. Of course, that's where our drinking water comes from. Absolutely. Uh, so long as our government stops selling all of it. Uh, that's another issue for another time. Uh, one of the things I have heard is the road mortality is not always accidental when it comes to turtles. There are, there is information I have seen that indicates some people are choosing to actually hit them. Uh, is this something that you hear much about? That is true. The vast majority of road injuries and mortalities are accidental. Okay. They can look like 
potholes in the road. They can look like uh, rocks, or some people just can't safely avoid them if it's a big turtle in the road. We don't want anyone to get in an accident over that. But there is the rare occasion where people do deliberately harm them. And I think that comes down to our education program where we have a large education program here that once people realize they're no threat to them and they're actually only doing positive things for them and their health, it's, it seems to really cut down that deliberate act. Mm -hmm. There's always somebody out there that will do that for, for, no, for no good reason. But I think the, now that the increased awareness is out there, people, it used to be more snapping turtles because people were scared of snapping turtles. So they get per persecuted more than other species perhaps. Yeah. But that's what, when uh, we sort of put a face to the snapping turtle and also say like, they can't hide in their shell like other species. So their only defense is aggression. They're not fast, they can't run away. So if they weren't aggressive, they'd be extinct. Yeah. So that's where when we do our education program and we take out Patty, our big marshmallow of a, of a snapping turtle, it puts a face to that so, so it sort of dispels the, the myth of the aggressive snapping turtle. They're not aggressive in the water, they can just swim away. Mm -hmm. But that's, I think humans, um, if they don't understand something, they're going to fear it. And if they fear it, they sort of want it gone. And so they, that's sort of their instinct is to destroy. But that's where the education side comes in. I like to think that there's very, very few people out there that with the knowledge would deliberately harm a turtle. Well, and I think what you're saying is very true uh, of all species. Uh, when true. we as humans fear them, we end up persecuting them. Exactly true, exactly. And talking about the education, can you tell us a bit about the education program you have here? Because I, I got the walkthrough and it seems pretty cool and a great opportunity for students or anyone who really loves animals. Yep. Uh, so what's involved with the, the education aspect of what you do? Education is intertwined with everything that we do. I do a lot of education for the rehabilitators and the vets and the technicians and we have an education coordinator who, who does the general population. So anything from kindergarten up to adults, we have conservation groups come in, we have MNR groups come in, we've got kids come in and it's just, and she goes out to schools too, brings the turtles out to schools. So it's it's quite it's developed over the years and I, I put as much emphasis on that as the hospital because I think that is how you're gonna get things changed is by motivating people to take the stewardship into their own hands or to, to, to sort of lobby for change themselves or to use the, the positive energy that's created. Yeah. So she works um, a full time on that pretty much. She's just, she's at the Science Center, the ROM, she gets wow. out to schools, she has events here. So the more we can get it out, I think that's the best way to conserve a species. As we are saying, they're gonna conserve what they love and they love what they understand. So if we can get that understanding ingrained even from a young age, that's what sets the, the stage, I think, for conservation. Excellent. And um, <laughs> we are asking people to ask questions, and everybody is just saying thank you to you for all you've done to help the turtles and to everybody here for, uh, for helping the turtles. So that's not what I was expecting, but it's nice to see. Uh, right, the people are very great. appreciative. Uh, and before we log off of the Facebook Live portion of this, how can people learn more about what you're doing here? How can they donate? How can they get involved? Ah, well, we are a registered charity, so we do... Thank you for bringing that up. We do, um, we couldn't do what we do without donations from the general public. So yes, to go onto our website at ontarioturtle.ca and uh, there's a donate button. You can come to the center, you can become a member, you can volunteer, volunteer for everything from education to grant writing, to feeding, to cleaning, to, so there's so many ways to get involved. And we, we're always welcoming new volunteers. But even just becoming a monthly donor, mm -hmm. that's even if it's $20 a month, that's $20. It's going to feed X number of turtles, and we yep. can rely on that every month. So, yeah, we, we really wouldn't be around if it wasn't for our volunteers and our donors. So 
that's thank you for uh, bringing that up. All right, so that's what we're going to uh, stop for now. But this will also be part of a podcast that will be online the second week of September, I believe. So please do stay tuned, and you can find the Ontario Turtle Conservation Center on Facebook. Uh, are you on Twitter? We are. You're on Twitter, Twitter Facebook, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram. I'm sure. Yep. Instagram's wonderful, and of course at OntarioTurtle.ca. And uh, we will be back with you for more. Uh, we need info on how to get involved. Oh, well, uh, OntarioTurtle.ca. Uh, <laughs> we've already mentioned that. Uh, and uh, we will uh, be back online with the full episode in about two weeks' time. Thanks very much. One of the things that was really interesting to me was you, you measure turtles in length, it looks like, on a lot of things. The, the carapace, is that how it's said? Carapace. Carapace. Uh, what the, I mean, how heavy do they get though? That's something I couldn't really establish by, by looking. Uh, so we, when any turtle comes in, they have all their, they have weight, sex, mm -hmm. species, and the length and width okay. measured. And they, we have them in anywhere from 300 grams to 20 kilograms. So 35 pounds? Yes. Wow. Uh, the biggest snappers are usually the um, males that come out in the early spring. Mm -hmm. And we've had some, yeah, that they felt a lot heavier, but they probably, I think 22 kilograms was one of our biggest. So that's yeah. 40, what's that, 40, over 45 pounds. Yeah, well, so, I mean, you look at them up close and you really see some of the motivation for Godzilla. And I say that both in jest and in all seriousness. Um, the texture of their skin, the shell, the coloring, everything is very much sort of what I, I recognize from watching monster movies. Very, very dinosaur-like. And they've actually been around longer than the dinosaurs, though. Oh. 220 million years. Wow. So, yeah, they've actually uh, seen dinosaurs come and go. And very little has changed in their life history um, and how they were made in their biology in all that time. They're smaller. They used to be yeah. a lot bigger back in those days. But um, not, not much has changed because it was working for them. Yeah. So they're cold-blooded. They're slow to mature, long life. Not many of them make it to maturity, but that didn't matter because they lived for a long, long time. Yeah. So now that we've sort of tipped that balance and humans have come along... It's, it's changed that whole dynamic. So it doesn't, their life history suddenly isn't so great, their biology, because the adults are being killed before they can re reproduce and enough to replace themselves. So whereas, you know, a coyote or a fox or a hawk could definitely, you know, their progeny is yeah, going to... Yeah, by one or two years old, they can start replacing themselves. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas in a snapping turtle, it's going to take, the re most recent study said it would take 59 years for them to replace themselves in the wow. population. So they have to live that long and they have to have about 1,500 eggs if, for even one to grow up and replace themselves. So that, that's what attracted me to this project was just the impact you could have on that. Well, we, we've seen 800 adults this year. So that's significant. If we can, you know, save most of those and get them back out and their reproductive age, that's going to be really significant to that population. Yeah. I love working with all species, but there's no species, I don't think, anywhere where you can have such a direct population impact, not, such an, not just an individual impact, mm -hmm. not that that's not important too, but to have an impact on the population at such a dramatic level through. Yeah. So it's a, it's a real conservation uh, project that's, that's what appealed to me. And then having the hatchlings in there was, was added gravy because mm -hmm. then... You know, even if the female doesn't make it, you still have maybe 60 babies that you can replace in that wetland and give them a head start because most of them wouldn't have survived in the wild. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. So right now you said you had about 3,000 eggs uh, incubating, I guess is, so have, is the term. Yeah, so we have close to 3,000. To be honest, I haven't had time to count them, but at last count it was like 2,500, and that was a while ago. So we have them. They're all hatching right about now, and we'll keep about 500 over the winter of the more endangered species, and the others will be released now while the weather's good to go back to the wetland that the mother came from. That's, it's, it's remarkable, and you're in this, I mean, I love what you've got here, and, and out here, where we're sitting right now, for those uh, who, who didn't catch Facebook Live and couldn't see any of it, it's this beautiful, uh, very local nature kind of garden, where you've got these uh, ponds set up in nice big uh, enclosures to protect turtles over summer, you've got picnic tables, uh, I see lots of native plant life around yep. to help encourage butterflies and bees. Pollinator and, garden there, yes. Yeah, everybody else. And inside, you've got a great education center with all these little turtles and big turtles. Um, and then in the back, you've just got rows upon rows of turtles in recovery who have just been born, who are yet to be born. It's, it's, it's difficult to comprehend, I think, almost, just from looking at the website and talking with you via email, how much goes on in this little commercial plaza here in Peterborough. It is. Um, it's been a bit overwhelming this year, that's for sure. We've yeah. been bursting at the seams. But, uh, yeah, every square inch has been filled with turtles. And we didn't expect, you know, we, we've got double the admissions that we did this time last year. Mm -hmm. So, we, of course, we always plan for growth because of increased awareness. But our plan wasn't to keep growing exponentially. It's to get other centers doing it and train others to do more and more. And also to prevent the problem. Hopefully, in time, there'll be more eco-passages so they won't be hit on the roads. Yeah. But So this came as a bit of a surprise to us. Probably a combination of the increased awareness out there. More and more people know about us and know about what to do if they find an injured turtle. And then... Uh, also, the weather has been just so perfect for them to move. Mm -hmm. Like a day like today is perfect, not too hot, not too cold. So they're out and moving en masse, whereas last year it was just so hot and so dry, they just they didn't want to go anywhere. So is that why you're seeing the increase? That's, that's probably a big fact. We see always the spikes in admissions correlate to the weather. Mm -hmm. So it's not that there was rain or there wasn't rain, it's just that the temperature was perfect. So usually we don't get in many emissions when it's raining, but then the next day when the sun comes out, we get lots of calls and we get them from all over Ontario. So the weather patterns, of course, are changing all over Ontario. Yeah. But generally this year, all over Ontario has been, has been the cold-blooded animals like a, a temperature range where they are the most active. And we've been right within that range the whole season. Whereas some seasons we have a very cold spring and we don't see them at all until later. We had them early and they just kept kept coming yeah and that's that's definitely been a notable aspect of this year so far is it's been very and i wouldn't say it's been mild it hasn't been hot necessarily but it's been very sort of steady exactly and that's that that in-between range that they love so again too hot they don't like to go anywhere too cold so we've when we have a cold cold nights like we've seen recently then it'll take them a day or so to keep get moving again so we had a couple of days of quiet this week we're the only ones, I think, in the province that were glad when we had those cold, that cold snap yeah. in the middle. We was like, oh, thank goodness, we can catch up a bit. But it's really been, it has been overwhelming. We need, we need more space, but um, with more space comes more cost. And being a charity, yeah. we have to make do with what we have currently. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I've seen a lot on Facebook lately, and this may be a bit of red car syndrome for me as I was thinking about doing this, but um, people talking about both getting a turtle across the road and checking turtles if you see them on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I know a lot of the sort of, it comes up in pop media and then gets shared a lot. It goes viral. But I'm not always certain as to how reliable that information is or how accurate it is. So let's start. If we see a turtle crossing the road or on the road, mm -hmm. what should we do as drivers? And this is a great question because this saves a lot of turtles. So as a driver, the number one thing is to make sure you're safe. Right. We, we want to encourage people helping turtles across the road, but we don't want anyone getting injured, for sure. So if it is safe to do so, pull over, put your flashers on, and when the, when the road is clear, you can uh, help the turtle across the road in the direction that it's going. There's pictures and videos on our website to describe how to pick them up if you don't feel comfortable doing that or yeah. how to use other methods, but always in the direction they're going. Even if it makes no sense to you, they haven't been around 200 million years by getting lost. <laughs> they know where they want to go. So that's so that's the number one thing. And, and also, if, um, if you see ones that, a turtle that appears to be not alive by the side of the road, a lot of times in the summer, it'll be a female that is carrying eggs. Mm -hmm. So we can still collect the eggs, incubate and hatch and release them. So you can still bring in, I know it sounds very distasteful, but if you could bring in the body, at least we can we check. Not only can we check for eggs and collect them, but also we can take um, statistics on the individual and where it was located. And that helps to inform mitigation measures down the road where yeah. the hotspots are. So it's, it's all useful for conservation. So, yeah, we always make sure that every every location gets identified and each species and sex and measurement gets recorded. Well, we were talking a bit about the education aspect and talking a bit about the, the rehab aspect, but you are doing some really interesting work with conservation that I, I understand is relatively new, I think you had said, in the last few years. Can you tell us a bit about what the project is sort of in, in broad strokes? Yeah, so one of our, well, our three main programs for conservation are the hospital and the hatchling center, the education, and the third is the field studies. Mm -hmm. And our field studies involves, it's, it's a lot of different uh, projects within it, but the main project is to add to the knowledge of best practices of how to properly head start, and by head starting I mean raise the babies to a certain age and release them, how to maximize success from that. And we are defining success as allowing the juveniles to get old enough that they're going to add to the adult population. So they're going to be recruited into the adult population and become productive members of, of that population. So we're, we've been doing this for six years where we're doing it with Blanding's turtles. So once they get to a certain size and they're big enough to hold uh, radio transmitters, we just uh, um, glue on a transmitter to their shell. It's totally non-painful, non-invasive at all. And then we track them using a receiver and we're tracking a group of them alongside a group of wild hatched juveniles of the same size and what we're trying to learn is are we is there anything we can do better can we increase their survival more what's the right size to put them out what's the right location to put them out um, is there an advantage to keeping them even longer than we do to, to is that going to increase or decrease the time to maturity so all these questions globally a lot of different projects are trying to answer and uh, our project is is up there and it, and it also has the control group which a lot of them don't have the opportunity to have where we can use those those wild ones as sort of indicators of how ours are doing. Mm -hmm. So, so far they're doing really, really well, um, but we've learned a lot. We learned a lot in the first year. We, we lost quite a few to predation, yep. and we learned how not to by seeing where the surviving ones 
were successful and then mimicking that environment for where we released the next ones then we reduced predation to zero for the next five years wow. so yeah so we've learned a lot and we realized that you do have to know the area where you're releasing them and this is just blanding so you can't necessarily transfer all the knowledge to other species but we use the basics of our knowledge for all the 2,000 or 3,000 that we're hatching right now so to hopefully increase their survival so that not only are we helping the adults when they grow out? But if we can ensure that a good proportion of the babies that go out add to the recruitment into the adult population, then that's a huge additional conservation benefit. Absolutely. And what what was the survival rate you had mentioned for, uh, and I, I'm sure it's different across the species, uh, but what's the typical survival rate from rehabilitation to release? From, oh, ones, the adults that come in? Yes. So about an hour... We just tallied this actually for um, someone else who was interested that 70% of them Mm -hmm. go on to be released. That's incredible. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and the ones that don't make it, and sadly, though, they don't all make it, a lot of them are carrying eggs so that we can make sure their progeny survive. Yeah. And even if they're males and they don't make it, the data is still really important for conservation. Absolutely. And I guess it's hard to say then, too, from sort of birth to death what the survival rate is because they do live so long. Um, and that, yeah, the life stages are very, very different. So because they, most of the eggs in the wild are eaten mm-hmm. and because it takes 1,500 to even get one that's viable enough to, to grow up to be an adult, the, the survival rate at that is, is almost zero. Yeah. The survival rate of adults is almost 100%. They're not, they don't have any natural predators and they're meant to have almost zero mortality in order to keep the population healthy yeah so what we're trying to do is just to try and augment it the other end to make up for the fact that we're losing so many adults Hmm. in with all our man-made threats yeah and that's i think what we're seeing more and more across all aspects of conservation research and rehabilitation uh whenever i talk with rehabbers the vast majority of the cases they get in are related to human caused issues whether it's roadways or uh, other kinds of infrastructure or intentional harm, as the case is often uh, in other species. Um, so it is interesting to sort of see how that's uh, comparable. Um, yes, and even, so I would say that all of the top threats are man-made. Do we have currently a, a fairly, uh, what appears to be a very healthy population of our native turtles, but Again, another man-made threat is the release of pet turtles into the mm-hmm. wild. Yes. And this is a huge concern for me because some of them are carrying diseases that our native populations are completely really? naive to. So if it gets into the wild population, and we're seeing that more this year, that we've had quite a few non-native species that were obviously pets and released brought in as road injuries. Mm-hmm. So these are adults. They're red-eared sliders primarily. They've been kept as pets and released. Uh, some of them are healthy and some of them are not. <clears throat> so that's a huge extra threat that we just don't need in the population yeah. is to introduce disease. So we can't get across strong enough. To, if you have a pet, do not release it into the wild yeah. under any means. If you have, if they're going into an outdoor pool, the outdoor pond has to be fenced mm-hmm. before you can put them in. I would say even fenced on top so that something can't get in to take them out. Because that's one extra threat that we can definitely avoid. And again, it's another man-made one, but it's a lot easier to to uh, eliminate than the road injuries, which is going to take yeah. you know it's going to take a long time to get those uh, those roads mitigated. 
Well, and there are, uh, I mean, those, so there's two points here to sort of discuss. We'll, we'll talk Redyard Sliders first, because that's my massive in-depth experience, as we've now discussed, uh, is with them. But they, I mean, from what I recall, they're sold, or they can be sold as little turtles for $10, $20. You buy a tank, you put them in the tank, and then they start growing. Yeah. How big can a red-eared slider get? <coughs> and that's the thing that most people don't realize. Those little tiny cute hatchlings that you can buy at the pet store. I just checked out $59. Mm. They are going to grow into a turtle at maybe 5 kilograms. Wow. Big, big, solid turtle. It's, it's too big for a tank in your house. They're really, really messy. It takes a lot of cleaning. There's nothing wrong with them per se as individuals, but they, they don't belong in the wild here. They're, out, they're competing with our native turtle population. They're possibly breeding with them, and also they are introducing diseases. But at the outset, people aren't told that those little babies are going to grow into the big turtles. Yeah. And, and turtles themselves, they're, they're harder to keep healthy in captivity than others. And I always say, if you want something easier to keep, get a hamster. Don't get a turtle. <laughs> Get a hamster. Yeah. And also turtles live for a long, long time. So this is something you're going to have for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's something I think we're learning a lot more about with a lot of what have been viewed as maybe somewhat traditional pets, whether we're talking turtles as today or we're talking parrots mm -hmm. who, at, you know, at the Humane Societies, they'll say, if you are going to get a parrot, make sure you have someone younger than you. Uh, that you can leave them to, mm -hmm. because that's probably going to happen. Exactly, um, yeah. And even some of the small rodents now, uh, they live several years, if not longer. I think guinea pigs live a surprisingly long time uh, and have very unique needs and personalities. Um, and there, there are, there's not as many small animal rescues, and I'd love to hear from some, but, um, you know, my experience is primarily with dogs. And that, just that level of education is so frustrating, trying to get across. Yes. Uh, and you're seeing, I think, maybe sort of that extreme end of it as well, of not only are you dealing with unwanted pets, you're now dealing with an unwanted pet who's introducing uh, uh, danger to an entire ecosystem exactly. that you are attempting to keep safe. Exactly. And they're not easy to place once they're that mm -hmm. age. I mean, a lot of the shelters won't take them. You know, they're not like the pocket pets that are easy to adopt. In some areas, they may not even be legal to have as pets. Yep. And also, um, you know, people don't... There's one uh, shelter that deals exclusively in rehoming red-eared sliders, but they have a nine-month waiting list because wow. so many people want to get rid of them. So what do they do? Well, the, the quick and easy solution, they don't want to wait nine months. Yeah. And the ones that come into our center, we don't euthanize them. We don't... I mean, it's not their fault that they're that they were pets, but we will never release them to yeah. the wild. So what we'll do is either keep them until a shelter has room for them or we'll find a home for them ourselves, but we'll never release them again into the wild. Yeah, and that's uh, uh, moving on to sort of that other part of this is talking about the treatments of some of these large animals. Um, and what was surprising to me was seeing uh, what I think was a snapping turtle. And again, I think Godzilla, so snapping turtle, that's now permanently etched in my mind. Um, with what looked like just uh, the same kind of uh, patches, gauze patches, that I'd have in my travel safety kits, in my backpack when I go camping. Um, is turtle health overtly complex in that way? <coughs> or is it ranging the way it is uh, with, with any other animal? So, you mean the turtle medicine itself? Or yeah, how yeah we so treat tre them? treating turtles, uh, okay. sort of both, I guess, from sort of that internal medicine through to surgical options and so on. 
So yeah, so the, the basic principles are transferable from humans, domestics, down to us. And we, we start with, and start with the basics of emergency medicine, and then we modify it according to how quickly our knowledge is growing with reptiles. And reptile medicine is, is far behind mammalian or even avian medicine at this point as to what we know. It's only relatively recently that we've learned what analgesics actually work for them. They have different... Really? Yeah, so we were using medications for them before, thinking that we were helping them, and then we were realizing it was doing nothing. They don't have the same pain receptors. So, And even within reptiles, you know, snakes are going to respond differently than, than turtles mm-hmm. than, and, and differently from lizards. So we're just recently getting some good uh, research and uh, public- publications done on what works. So which pain medication works, what doses, they're still trying to figure out them. But even something as simple as the, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, yep. those, we use them we don't know if they work and we don't know what dose to use yet wow. they're still doing studies on them things like um uh other ones like tramadol which is a synthetic opioid yep. it actually we've had some good studies done on them and we know that it works they're still trying to figure out the exact dose and how frequently to give it but these mm-hmm. are these are things that are pretty basic yeah, to medicine absolutely. and that and it's pretty in the just in the last 10 years that we're learning the general emergency care and the stabilization and the fluid therapy is pretty standard mm-hmm. among species but they like they for instance they like everything slower so they don't like to be hydrated as quickly as a mammal or a bird they like it slower and also a lot of the medications have to be given at a different dosage and usually less often yeah so some of them are every three days instead of every day but wound management is the same no matter what species, but you have to know the anatomy. So if there's a big wound on a turtle, you have to know what's underneath it. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be, our instinct is always to clean everything and flush everything. And if you do that with a turtle and you don't know as yet if there's a hole into the body cavity because their shell is just bone overlying the body cavity, you can actually drown them by trying to, to really? treat the wound. So knowing some basic anatomy and physiology is helpful. And also to know that to get drug absorption, uh, because they're cold-blooded, you have to have them at the right temperature to get the absorption of the of the drug. Yeah. Uh, and likewise for anesthetic, you have to know that they they go to anaerobic respiration so easily. They stop breathing. That's what they're they're so good at. That's yeah. why they can hibernate. That's why they can dive. So if you're going to try and mask them down with an inhaled anesthetic, you're going to be there f- for days because they <laughs> they just stop breathing. So yeah. you have to know this. It's not that that's harder or, or easier. It's just that it's different. Yeah. Um, but the same basic principles with adaptations for the different unique huh. physiology. That's fascinating. And I guess it's just, it's funny because you see this hard shell on a snapping turtle and it looks like plate armor. It really does. And you're treating it with paper gauze pretty much still uh, in some respects to keep it clean and safe. Yeah, so the open wounds are treated like open wounds because usually those the, the shell has been scraped away by the trauma. The vehicle mm-hmm. scrapes the, the bone away. So you have a hole there. So you're treating it as an open wound until it has time to heal in. <coughs> so that's the same, <coughs> same principle no matter what species. It's just keeping the wound from getting infected. Daily wound dressings. Um, it's just labor-intensive, but they, they probably heal. I, in my experience, I worked with lots of different species, Better, they heal better than any other species. Huh. It just takes longer. Yeah. Because again, low metabolic rate 
they're cold-blooded, so it's going to take them a long time to heal, but they do it supremely well. So is that kind of like how I explain to my wife that she may need to remind me to clean under certain parts of dishes, but once I do remember it, I remember it extremely well? <laughs> That's right. Well, I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> you know, I a, try and get all kinds of professionals to get me out of trouble, and it never seems to stick. That's a dangerous road to go down, I think. <laughs> no pun intended. We'll stay away. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, oh, I thought maybe to wrap up, we can talk uh, a bit about the future. Um, mm-hmm. So we're at a point now where the government is recognizing that many of these species of turtles are a special concern or threatened. Uh, I remember seeing some notifications about... Um, changes to the uh, uh, hunting of certain yes. turtles mm-hmm. in the last year. Yeah, uh, I see more and more people, as you said, sort of bringing in <laughs> turtles here. Uh, people are learning more about them, about their roles in the ecosystems, about their importance. But the fact that they're more or less dinosaurs, and that's kind of awesome. Um, what's next for, for you, for the center, and for turtles in Ontario? That's a really multi-dimensional yes. question, isn't it? But I think... As far as, yeah, I think the increased awareness, the public was completely behind the ban of the snapping turtle hunt. Mm -hmm. So that got implemented because of a very motivated minister and her policymakers, the strong support of the public and sound science that said, this isn't just us using emotion we don't want to go, this is not sustainable. So I think sound science backing it up really helps the conservation movement and having all, you know, the motivation of the the political side and the backing of the public. So where are we going in the future? I think just more of the same, using that same motivation to implement more eco passages and to ensure that wetlands are protected, um, encourage individuals to have stewardship as well as, as, you know, the, the bigger, bigger political side of things because the individuals can do so much mm-hmm. like our outreach and the number of people release if one in ten of those even save one turtle that's more than I would save in the hospital in the year yeah. so that's it's huge so I think we're just going to go more and more towards that and hopefully build towards a, a more sustainable future for them in the meantime we'll be here doing what we can to help the ones that do get injured and also help other centers we have a lot of uh, centers that we help to train across the the province that may some of them just do it casually they may be a clinic that just wants to help and they donate their time to help turtles first response for turtle emergency care because we see them from all over Ontario mm-hmm. and some of them might be other rehabilitation centers that do all species but maybe didn't feel comfortable doing turtles before and we help them feel comfortable so that they can you know, can do more and more on their own. So I think that's the way we're going, is just to hopefully, what, what our goal would be is to get get them downlisted rather than, yes, we were fighting to get them listed so that we would pay attention to them. Now let's fix the problems yeah. so that we get them off the list and have, uh, you know, a safer place for them to live. To learn more about the Ontario Turtle Conservation Centre or the Kawartha Turtle Trauma Centre, visit ontarioturtle.ca. I want to offer a huge thanks to Dr. Carstairs for spending so much time with me at the center, giving me the full tour and helping me learn so much about the turtles of our province. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app, and to follow me on Facebook or Twitter at Defender Radio to find out about other upcoming live interviews, events, and a few upcoming contests. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.